Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. How about this, David Gura? Grave New World, I'm reading it. I don't have time to read all the books we get in. I'm up through chapter three. This is where Queen Victoria shows up. It's a beautiful international relations overlaid with history, 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 history. It's in English. <laughs> Bonus round. There's no math. Grave New World, Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King, great to have you with us here in New York in our, our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Let me start with the, the news of the day, the news of the, the weekend, uh, this terrorist attack in London. You write a good deal here in this book about uh, technology and the dark side of, of technology. Overlay that if you would, on, on globalization. Uh, a lot of people tell us that we have a globalized world principally because of technological development. There yes. is a dark side to it that you outline in this book. There are a lot of dark sides to the technology story. Um, the, the first dark side actually is social media, the way in which you get the herding of ideas. In the old days, people thought the internet would be a, a kind of bastion of truth, uh, whereas it allows you increasingly to find people who agree with you regardless of whether your views are right or wrong. So you get this kind of herding which makes it more difficult to form if like a kind of sovereign view in any one nation about what should be going on. Uh, obviously, when it comes to terrorism, uh, we know that uh, terrorists in part get their information um, from social media in one form or another, sometimes on the dark web, but nevertheless, it's a way of, of connecting people in to do dastardly and unpleasant things rather than things that could be uh, in any way significantly positive. I think it's also worth noting that technology may also have a kind of negative long-run impact on globalization itself. We think about outsourcing, about mm -hmm. global supply chains and so on. But robotics probably will lead eventually to a lot of these jobs being coming back home in one sense, but coming back home to robots rather than to workers, say, in China or India or whatever. Then the big question is, well, who owns the robots? Who makes the money from that um, in years to come? But I think it's, it's worth stressing that technology is not something which if like guarantees that globalization advances, it can both be positive for globalization, as people have argued over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, but equally it can be uh, significantly negative. And globalization depends ultimately on ideas, mm -hmm. institutions, political beliefs, what humanity does with technology rather than the technology itself. We saw a backlash here against uh, globalization in many corners of, of this country during the, the last presidential election. It seems like there's still a, a definitional problem with globalization. I think a lot of people don't know how to define it. As Tom was saying, uh, you trace this back to, to Christopher Columbus, <laughs> globalist. Yes. Uh, why do we still have so much trouble defining it and, and highlighting what is, in fact, beneficial about globalization? Well, some people would say it's just a story about multinationals mm -hmm. becoming ever more powerful and reducing the voice of the common person in some way. Um, others would point to globalization being associated with migratory flows. But I would say that the, the broad definition is the idea that the borders that inhibit human connections come down. Mm. Uh, and these connections are obviously through trade in goods, trade in services, uh, movements of capital across borders, uh, movements of people across borders. If you think about the, the European Union and its so-called four freedoms, mm. the freedom of movement of goods, services, capital, and people, in one sense, it's a kind of regionalized version 
of of globalization. Um, and uh, of course, within the EU, there are those who who very much support that idea, but there are those who feel that uh, they've been left behind and it's not working for them. Do we need new stimulus as a general statement? I mean, I showed you that chart earlier. Folks, I'll put it out on Twitter. It's a killer chart. Thanks, Zero Hedge, for pushing me on it. Back to a comparison of the last decade's growth back to the 1930s. I went back to modern economic data in 1947. Boy, it's unusual how slow this growth is. Yes. What do we just simply, are we too timid in our fiscal stimulus? Well, it's possible that we are, although it is worth stressing that uh, countries that have used fiscal stimulus in the past to try to kickstart their economies have often found that the effects have been more short-lived than they originally expected. I mean, Japan, for example, had lots of examples of fiscal stimulus in the 1990s and beyond, and yeah. ended up building sort of bridges to nowhere and so on, which didn't really help them very much. You think about Spain before the global financial crisis, uh, Spain had huge amounts of infrastructure spending. Uh, which certainly helped to transform the economy, but also left it with a huge amount of debt, which then led to you know, significant struggles thereafter. Um, so I think part of the, the puzzle in one sense is that it's a productivity puzzle, really, that we've got lots of technology coming out all the time. We can observe it in our day-to-day -day lives, but it isn't having the kind of productivity impact in lifting output per hour or output per head in the way you might have seen back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Mm -hmm. So the danger with your chart is that perhaps we're seeing a kind of structural slowdown of economic growth. This is not a cyclical story. It is a structural story, in one sense, akin to the Japanese experience in the 1990s and beyond. And one possible reason for this, and it's only one possible reason amongst many, is that Western populations are aging. And as they age, they become increasingly risk-averse. They want to make sure that they have money up front rather than money invested for the long run because the long run is becoming shorter and shorter as the population becomes older. And the consequence is that companies are increasingly under pressure to pay out dividends or offer share buybacks than actually to invest for the long term in their businesses. So you end up with low rates of, of capital spending, which of course then equates to lower rates of, of GDP growth. Stephen King, great to see you. Thank you again uh, for coming in here in New York. Stephen King, uh, the author of Grave New World. The We're seeing way too much the return of it. Of, <laughs> too much of the return of, of history. Saw you in London a few months back. Great to see you here uh, in New York. Uh, do check out the book. And Tom, you're going to finish it? Yeah, I, no, it's really, really, what's one, I mean, Lord Stern happens to like the book, and a guy named Summers who's going to join us ah, here okay. in a bit happens to like it. It's an important book, as Larry Summers says, and it's, again, folks, overlay, where else can you hear Thomas Hobbes than Stephen King, Grave New World? Now joining us, former Secretary of Treasury, Elliott Professor, Harvard University, Lawrence Summers. Larry, wonderful to catch up with you again. I featured it the day the essay came out. David Frum wrote it up in The Atlantic. David Brooks wrote it up in The New York Times. And now you crush the concept of global community and arena. You take the arena back to Versailles. How is the president's arena like the horror and the bad decisions made at Versailles a lifetime ago? He's abandoned the effort of creating a stable, prosperous global system in favor of a farm policy based on individual one-off deals. That's not an approach that's been taken uh, since Versailles. And when it was taken at Versailles, it was hardly successful. What followed was depression and uh, ultimately the Second World War. Now, I'm not saying that that's the consequence of his pulling out of the 
Paris Agreement. But I was, uh, I've been troubled all along by this administration. But I've been able to understand the argument that uh, the bark has been worse than the bite, the argument that uh, Congress is going to prevent some of the most radical proposals from being enacted, and the argument that he has a set of very rational and experienced advisors in the, in the international arena. I was prepared to take those arguments very seriously. When two of the advisors, uh, Gary Cohn and General McMaster, who were held out as the ones who were experienced and in the idea of an international system, take to the Wall Street Journal to proclaim there's no such thing as a community of nations. I mean, that idea of a community of nations, it's not some progressive, goo-goo, idealistic uh, <laughs> thing. It was a staple of the rhetoric of Ronald Reagan, Henry Kissinger, Jim Baker, George W. Uh, Bush. And when they say that's not part of our foreign policy anymore, I don't see how the rest of the world can react other than to change their approach uh, to America. Mrs. Merkel might or might not have been prudent to say what she said, about other nations, not, about not being able to rely on other nations the way they had in the past. But I think she would have been highly irrational if she hadn't had the thought. And that's why I'm worried. You couple that with growing evidence that we're in the first uh, post-rational presidency, denying the evidence on crowd sizes after his inauguration mm-hmm. comes from clear photographs is kind of a trivial Example, a budget with a $2 trillion arithmetic error is a more consequential example. And an unwillingness to acknowledge the preponderance of evidence in favor of global climate change is an extraordinarily consequential uh, example. So I think these two things have to lead one to be extremely worried, and it would be worrisome with leadership of that kind in any nation. But when it's the United States, it's that much more worry-generating. Professor Summers, how much confidence do you have in the the business community at this point? After the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Accord last week, uh, a number of executives said they'd continue with the programs they had in place to address uh, climate change. Clearly, there's a vacuum here when it comes to climate, when it comes to uh, the global order. Uh, do you have much confidence in businesses to, to pick up the mantle? I think what all of us outside of government do is going to be very important. If we take the position that patriotism means <clears throat> supporting and standing with our president, I think others will worry much more yeah. about the United States. Well, if we take the If we take the position that patriotism lies in standing with enduring American values, then I think others will come to right. see this is the aberrant period that I hope it will be. Mr. Secretary, one more question. You have been a Secretary of Treasury. You've had a lot of other positions at 1600 Pennsylvania. A lot of the known world is waiting for the quote-unquote adults in the room to guide the president to a better outcome. You've been in those meetings. Do you anticipate that will occur? Look, the thing that was most surprising to me in the last week 
was two of the people who are normally identified as those adults said a petulant, petty, and dangerous thing by condemning the idea of community of nations. And whether they did that out of conviction or whether they did that because they felt they had to out of loyalty, we got the answer to uh, the question. The atavistic, revanchist uh, approach manifest in the president's tweets is for now in control of U.S. foreign policy. Let's continue. And that's got to be alarming. Just because of time, Mr. Secretary, we're going to leave it there. Lawrence Summers, thank you so much. And, of course, he drives forward the dialogue. Whether you agree or disagree, I really commend Lawrence Summers, the FT, and in the Washington Post today on the global community in the arena. David Gura, I mean, you know, we, we identified this the day that the essay came out. And then David Frum wrote it up in the Atlantic. Then David Brooks wrote it up in the Times. And now we see Secretary Summers writing up this this. D- Search for what the arena actually means. Yeah, absolutely. Powerful words there about the community of nations. Also worth reviewing the piece that he wrote about the Anderson Bridge in Cambridge on this day as we begin a week focused on infrastructure, at least so the White House uh, says, of course, he makes the pilgrimage from Lidauer Hall uh, to the Anderson Bridge uh, in Cambridge. I miss well that. worth reading. Then I'll put it out on Twitter. Okay, put Give that out. I miss that. David Gura on the Anderson Bridge. Good morning, Bloomberg 1200 Boston. Don't fall into the river. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Let's get a little insight here in what's going on in Washington this week. Some congressional recess coming to an end here. Uh, as we push ahead to Thursday again, when the former FBI director, James Comey, is uh, expected to testify before in the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee. Terry Haynes joins us now. He's a senior political strategist, head of political analysis at Evercore ISI. He joins us on our phone lines. Terry, great to have you with us here. We were talking with Larry Summers just a few moments ago, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary, uh, about uh, the U.S.'s role in the world. We could have talked with him about infrastructure as well. The White House trying doggedly here uh, to shift focus, at least members of the administration are to shift focus to infrastructure. The president interceding a bit this morning with some tweets about the attacks in London and his travel ban. Uh, how much traction do you expect this administration to make on fiscal spending, on infrastructure uh, going forward? Well, fundamentally, uh, David, thank you for having me this morning. Uh, I do aspire to be the guy with the beer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, there undoubtedly is a political aspect uh, to the infrastructure rollout this week, but I don't want to minimize the, the, the need and desire of this administration to actually have such an event and to, and to roll this out in a meaningful sense. Uh, the president talked uh, to Congress at the end of February about having a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. Uh, you know, our view for some time, for longer than that, has been that uh, there's about $300 billion uh, over three years available in direct federal spending, and that the bulk of this is going to have to come, uh, therefore, uh, from some sort of public-private partnerships, uh, incentives for, for private spending. Uh, that appears to be the direction, the way the, the, generally, the way the administration is going. Uh, but they need to get moving on this. Uh, they need uh, not just political accomplishments, but uh, the infrastructure idea and spending big on infrastructure was at the core of uh, the president's message during the campaign and uh, and one of the cores of his appeal, I think. And 
this is some, so as a result, this is something that they're really going to have to push on hard. And uh, I know the markets have been waiting for this for quite a while, and uh, so a lot of political people. When you talk to clients, I imagine one thing they, they really want to know is what the agenda is shaping up to be on Capitol Hill. We're, we're familiar with how compressed this congressional calendar is, speeding ahead to September the 30th. There aren't a whole lot of working days between now and then. From the House leadership, from the Senate leadership, do you have a clear sense of what they're going to prioritize? Uh, well, I think I do. The uh, the the marching order here is is pretty much that, and, and you know something that Congress and the President have agreed upon uh, in public. By the way, is that uh, they want to finish the fiscal 2017 uh, reconciliation instructions on the, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, in English, that means uh, getting rid of the uh, the ACA tax structure. That that will then allow. Congress to roll those savings, which uh, many think could be as much as a trillion dollars, it would be less probably, but then, you know, think of it that way, into the fiscal 2018 uh, reconciliation, where where you get a uh, tax pro- uh, a, a tax reform uh, program, and what that ends up doing is lowering the budget baseline by about a trillion dollars, thereby making tax reform much more aggressive uh, and possible. That has to happen. Now, our my view today is that they've got to finish uh, the ACA probably by the August recess uh, to keep everything on track, and then they can turn to tax reform in the fall. That seems to be the way it's going. Those seem to be the priorities. Uh, then you get to your first question, which is infrastructure. I mean, infrastructure is a practical matter that doesn't uh, doesn't really come uh, come until uh, 2018. Those two things I mentioned plus spending bills in the fall and the debt ceiling, whether it comes before the August recess or afterwards, uh, take up much of the rest of the congressional calendar this year. So infrastructure uh, de facto becomes a 2018 item. I think what today epitomizes for me is that you can have the best laid plans right now with this administration and wish Washington, and they can be upended rather quickly. You have Gary Cohn uh, in the newspapers, in the media over the weekend, outlining his expectations for the week, again, with a focus on infrastructure. And then you get a number of tweets from the president this morning uh, casting light in a, in a different direction, uh, looking at this travel ban. He's embracing the term travel ban. He's encouraging his attorney general, the Justice Department, to defend a watered-down uh, version of it before the, the Supreme Court. How do you deal with that? How do you advise clients to deal with that, the fact that you could have what you think is a clear sense of what's going to happen in Washington, and then all of a sudden that changes with just 140 characters? <laughs> I think uh, I, I urge context, David. And uh, the past few years, I mean, this is Believe me, not casting aspersions on the on the prior administration at all, uh, not making this a value judgment. But you had a relatively uh, stable Washington over the past few years. People understood what was going to happen. People understood priorities, all the rest. Mm-hmm. Now you get for the first time in eight years a brand new administration with new priorities. So there's you know things all over the map happen, uh, and. You know, this is, of course, a concern to markets because they need to understand uh, what's going on. And there's more activity simultaneously than there has been in a lot of years. Uh, My urging is to essentially, you know, keep your focus on the basics. What is actually going on? What is what is, you know, what are the priorities? Uh, And this administration, of course, as I say, will have priorities across the board. But focus on what's actually happening in the timetable, and uh, and that will tell you what's actually going to happen. Terry, thank you so much. Terry Haynes with ISI this morning with a briefing thank as you, we Tom. go into. Uh, we get David, really, Thursday's the big day. I mean, we get the U.K. election, but that's the testimony, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to be an right. open session in the morning. There'll be a closed session testimony in the afternoon. And obviously a lot of this was hammered out in conversations with Robert Mueller, who's now uh, heading up that, How does that he independent fit into investigation. Well, James Comey said he wouldn't testify before consulting with him. So you have these dual-track oh, investigations, and uh, Mr. Comey said he wanted to be clear uh, that what he was going to say in open session wouldn't yeah. uh, be stepping on the toes of what Mr. Mueller is investigating. So, I, yes, all eyes will be on Washington, I think it's fair to say, on, on Thursday. I had an email come in, which which was... Where's the photo from the president's new Twitter page? He yeah. changes his photo a lot. Often. I believe it's Denver. I, I've been going back and forth with Kevin Cirilli trying to figure it out. But he did a rally in Denver with a humongous number of people in a airplane hangar. Yeah, familiar image here with, uh, with a packed airplane hangar. And there's Air, Air Force, Force One on the outside. The plane has changed, yeah. but the scene uh, very much yeah. the, the same. Uh, oh, does he? St- well, that's that. Great, just a moment to go to talk to uh, the National Association for Business uh, Economics. Eager yeah. to talk to somebody else, Tom O's membership dues, too. That's Richard Haas, the president of the Council that right. on Foreign <laughs> Relations, the author of the book, A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. Joining us on our phone lines, Richard Haas, great to speak with you once again. Let me start with what the prime minister said uh, yesterday. Quote, our society should continue to function in accordance with our values, but when it comes to taking on extremism and terrorism, things need to change. What what needs to change uh, in London, in the West, in light of, of what happened over the weekend in London? Yeah, it's all about the balances in a, in a democratic society, how much surveillance versus how much privacy, uh, how much police presence, uh, how well are they, uh, how are they to be armed, uh, access to information and free use of the Internet versus greater degrees of control over certain types of uh, content. And that's what Theresa May, the prime minister, is getting at. Now, what I think she's suggesting is that uh, the pendulum needs to shift somewhat in the direction uh, of protecting collective security and a little bit less of an emphasis on individual uh, freedom or privacy. Something else that the prime minister suggested is that tech companies need to do more. We've heard this now time and time again after uh, these attacks. How much responsibility does the private sector bear? Do these tech companies bear? Uh, what should governments be doing to, to encourage tech companies to do more? Well, again, it's, it's going to be very difficult because of the balances, and it's also just simply hard to keep up. Uh, it's quite easy for people to innovate with uh, new sites uh, you know, on Twitter or Facebook or, or some of the fancier uh, Telegraph and some other sites like that. So sure, the companies can do more if they wish to do more, but they're also worried mm. that too, too intimate a relationship with law enforcement and intelligence will lose the trust of their users. So this is, this, you know, there's some tough calls for them as well here. Uh, Wonder Woman got a huge box office this weekend. <laughs> okay. And 18 years ago, the bureaucratic entrepreneur got just as large a box office. The bureaucratic, often confused. Often. Uh, often confused. <laughs> the bureaucratic entrepreneur, how to be effective in an unruly organization. Ambassador, if you were writing your Brookings book there of ages ago about this Trump administration, administration how would you be effective in an unruly organization? Well, I'm not sure you really can be. Uh, there was a story in uh, Politico in the last few hours that uh, when the president gave a speech to Europe, Tom, that the final draft had him specifically endorsing Article 5, the attack on one as an attack on all uh, statement. And then somehow between that 
And when the president gave the speech, gremlins got into the Oval Office, probably in the form of Steve Bannon, and took it out. That's a degree of unruliness that is downright dangerous. And if you're the, if you're the National Security Advisor or the Secretary of State of Defense, I would yeah. say it's untenable. So I would basically tell the president, if you want us to serve here, there have got to be certain commitments yeah. and guidelines, or we cannot serve you. And now, folks, we get another opinion on the the most important issue of the moment. David Frum wrote it up in The Atlantic, David Brooks in The New York Times. We just had the honor of Secretary Summers being with us on the arena. Ambassador Haas in the McMaster Cone uh, essay, there was President Trump and an arena. What's the arena? Uh, Your guess is as good as mine, but I think what they're getting at is this kind of Hobbesian view of the, the world. Uh, in which the United States has no relationships worth preserving. There's no institutions worth buttressing. Everything is a one-off. Everything is uh, in isolation. And that is simply an untenable way to do foreign policy. And it ignores the uh, extraordinary inheritance that has been painstakingly developed over the last 60 or 70 years. And that is our second Hobbes reference of the morning here on Bloomberg. <laughs> That's very happy to have that happen. <laughs> Richard Hobbes, let me, let me have you look ahead to Hamburg, to the G20 uh, this summer. We, we saw the report in Der Spiegel over the weekend about uh, the the tension at the G7 meeting just over a week ago. What's your outlook for that meeting as we see the U.S. backing out of of, of this uh, traditional transatlantic uh, relationship? What, what do you expect is going to transpire at that meeting in Hamburg? Well, what we saw at the G7 holds where effectively it became a G6, then the G20 becomes something of a G19. And you can't deal effectively, say, with issues like trade. You can't deal effectively with issues like climate. The United States will want an emphasis on terrorism, uh, possibly on dealing with North Korea and proliferation. So what what this group will be in the formal collective sense now is increasingly, how would I call it, a group of narrow casting. And the idea that it would do broadcasting and deal with global issues writ large, that that era is temporarily suspended. Richard Oss, thank you so much. He's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, and I should say, Ambassador, what a joy to speak to Robert Kaplan at CFR here the other day, the Dallas Fed uh, president. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.